welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brabeck. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week we are visiting our dear friends, Tommy and Tuppence, which uh, I'm always excited about. I don't know about you, Kemper. Love a visit with the Beresfords. They are tackling the clergyman's daughter. So tell us a little bit about the publication history of this one, Kemper. All right. Well, The Clergyman's Daughter was first published in the Grand Magazine, which we have certainly come across before in um, Agatha Christie publication histories of episodes yore. This one in December 1923 under the title The First Wish, which is Mm. interesting. Not even exactly sure what that is referring to, but well, it could be like a Christmas wish. This is actually the first published story within the Partners in Crime collection. Of course, the collection didn't come out until 1929. Most of the stories were published a few years later. And we also And mostly in the sketch, as we know. And mostly in the sketch. Except for and we just we actually just did the one that was the latest to be published in a newspaper in that Christmas edition right yeah the unbreakable alibi in um holly leaves magazine so well and you know incidentally this is also definitively a christie for christmas yes it is because christmas it's is referenced fact, here this is christmassy is. this is it a is christmassy story yes mm-hmm. so this is yet another christie short story for christmas here and within the partners in crime collection it's actually broken up into two chapters the first is called the clergyman's daughter and the second is the red house just in case anyone is confused by that as they they are reading along with us in their Partners in Crime book. And I believe also for that reason, when this story was first published in the Grand Magazine, it read a little differently because Christy had to do a little bit of snipping away at the edges and refashioning these stories so that they fit together as a volume of short mm. stories. So I imagine... we've seen this happen before, too. Yeah, yeah. And I think she did a pretty good job, actually, putting these stories together in the collection, they all feel like they fit together relatively well. Certainly better job than the stitching of short stories to make up the big four. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) a low bar, my friend, a low bar. All right, let's talk about our victim. Well, there isn't a victim per se, right? There is a damsel in distress. Our damsel in distress is Monica Dean. And she's young and very impoverished and the daughter of a late clergyman. And she has inherited this house from her late aunt. But it appears, uh, how to say this? It appears to be haunted by a poltergeist. So they can't get any lodgers to stay there. Let's talk about our suspects here. Obviously, or maybe not obviously, because sometimes these mysteries turn into murder mysteries, even within a short story, but there is no murder within this story. So we have a mystery here, but no murder, which is why our victim is merely a damsel in distress. She is not killed. Thank God, because Monica Dean is charming. She is. So first suspect is Monica Dean. <laughs> uh, right. May have given away the fact that she does not turn out to be the one who done whatever it is that was done. But yeah, while obviously sympathetic, she has come to Tommy and Tuppence distressed and with no money. So who knows? Maybe she's trying to pull a con here. We just saw a <laughs> similar maybe, situation. We maybe recently saw this. Yeah, with uh, Mr. Parker Pine. 
the case right. of the distressed lady. Yeah. Yeah. This is another distressed lady. So you know what? We're not too trustful of distressed ladies at this moment after having just done that episode fairly recently. Yeah. So, you know, would not be the first time and that Monica Dean, maybe she's just too nice. Yep. You know, next up we have Mrs. Dean, Monica's mother, and she's an invalid, which would seem to put her out of the running or would it? Perhaps she is faking the whole thing. We don't know. Remember the House of Lurking Death, previous Tommy and Tuppence story, where the woman laid up in bed turned out to be the one who did it. And then she got almost burned alive and died of a heart attack. So, you know. (laughs) More exciting than things we'll get in this story, in (laughs) case anybody was expecting uh, fireworks. Next up, we've got Mrs. Crockett, who is the elderly housekeeper. Never underestimate the help. Mrs. Crockett has worked at the Red House, which is where this mystery takes place, for eight to ten years. It says eight or ten years, and then it's verbatim quoted in the adaptation. So, yes, so she's worked at the Red House for eight or ten years, around eight to ten years. It's interesting. (laughs) Why not just say around ten years? I couldn't tell you, but okay. And she is very competent, if not particularly pleasant. And then we have Dr. O'Neill, the head of the Society for Psychical Research, who has offered to buy the house for Monica several times. But he also looks suspiciously like a previous potential buyer. And this, I think, takes us to the world as it appears to be, Kemper. All right. Let's talk about this. So Miss Monica Dean, she approaches the blunt agency in need of help regarding her recent inheritance. You see, she is, as we said, an impoverished daughter of a clergyman, much like Tuppence herself once was. Well, except as we know, Tuppence is not impoverished. But Tuppence was the impoverished daughter of a clergyman at the beginning Uh, of The Secret Adversary. Well, she was young and broke. Yes. I don't think Tuppence would disagree with that. No, although she does, I will note that she does say later in the story that um, it's a good, she says to Tommy, it's a good thing we're quite rich. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, she's, she's happy that they've gotten where they are, but they started off modestly, shall we say, but with lots of spunk, with a lot more spunk than Monica Dean certainly had. But Tuppence is keen on drawing parallels between herself and Monica Dean, who she's quite taken with. So Monica Dean shows up and she tells them an estranged aunt recently passed away, leaving Monica everything. Hooray! But while Monica was under the impression that this aunt was extremely wealthy, there was no money left after a few bequests were paid. All that was left was this large old house, the Red House. Monica and her mother moved in and they immediately had an offer to buy it. But they're so poor that they decide that they actually want to live there. Seems that, you know, they don't really have another place to live because their situation before this inheritance was so untenable that it just was going nowhere good. Right. They were living in a too expensive flat, basically. Right. And had no income, whereas they could pay nothing for their rent if they moved into Mm -hmm. the house and they could take on lodgers, right? Right. Exactly. So this is the sort of they were going to take on paying guests. That is why Monica turns down this offer of purchase. But unfortunately, that is when the hauntings start. Things move in the night. They crash down the stairs. They fly across rooms. If you've seen any of the Poltergeist movies, you will know what we are talking about here. It might very well be a Poltergeist intrusion instead of a classic haunting. Poltergeist are usually associated with an individual. Hauntings seem to be connected with an area. 
a house, usually. Each new set of lodgers is scared off. So Monica Dean is beside herself because their whole plan here is not working out so well. Because they're in desperate need of money, a new buyer has approached Monica and she's considering the offer. But this Dr. O'Neill, who wants to buy the house, so he wants to buy the house to conduct paranormal research on, Mm -hmm. just a thing that people do. Sure. So Monica, again, is tempted to sell it, but, but for the fact that she's become convinced that Dr. O'Neill is the same guy as the much younger man who originally tried to buy the house from her. So while O'Neill is middle-aged and gray and bearded, um, and the previous would-be buyer was young and dark-haired and vibrant, they both have a gold tooth in the exact same place, and they both have ears that are distinctly almost entirely lacking earlobes. Interesting. I believe that is a recessive trait that some people possess. Well, so I suppose it could be father and son, but I mean, Monica is uh, convinced that they're the same person. Yeah, the gold tooth is pretty compelling well, evidence. Son, son could have had it as tribute to his father. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you know in Home Alone how they always show Joe Pesci's sparkling gold tooth? Having a reunion or something? Oh, no, my husband's brother transferred to Paris last summer, and both of his kids are still going to school here, and I guess he missed the whole family. He's giving us all this trip to Paris for the holiday so we can be together. You're taking a trip to Paris? Yes, we hope to leave tomorrow morning. Excellent. And then mm-hmm. the dad finds it at the very end of the movie at the foyer. Mm-hmm. Yes, much like that. Sure, exactly like that. <laughs> so she asks for Tommy Tuppence's help here to find out what is really going on. Tuppence, by the way, has been, as we mentioned, all about Monica Dean from the get-go. And as the story begins, she predicts, right, that a clergyman's daughter is we'll going to well, is going to show up. She's just going on and on in general and talking a lot. And this affords Tommy the opportunity to reference a mystery author because, of course, this is a partners in crime story. So there has to be a mystery author of Agatha Christie's day when this was published, who Tommy and Tuppence are imitating or paying homage homage to to in some way, homage to in some way. Tommy calls out Tuppence for getting ready to be Roger Sheringham, who is a Mm -hmm. detective created by Anthony Berkeley Cox, who wrote under several pen names, but I believe was often known as Anthony Berkeley. This is interesting because from what I could deduce in my online research is Anthony Berkeley and his detective creation, Roger Sheringham, did not actually come into being until the mid-20s, which means that one of the changes Christie must have made to this story between its publication in the Grand Magazine in 1923 and its inclusion in the Partners in Crime collection in 1929 was to add this little bit about Roger Sheringham and Tuppence being called Miss Sheringham. You know, normally she's referred to as Miss Robinson, but Tommy refers to her as Miss Sheringham once Monica Dean gets there. That's really all that ever happens in terms of the allusions to Roger Sheringham, and certainly there are no allusions to Anthony Berkeley himself. So it makes sense to me that that was sort of thrown in at the beginning of this story to just knit it together that much more closely within the collection. So that's why I think this is a particularly glancing reference here. It was pretty clearly added in after the fact. Anthony Berkeley and his detective creation, Roger Sheringham, seem to have mainly fallen 
out of the public eye. There are some of these books are still in print, but I mean, this um, is what we have found with a lot of the reference points. Yeah. This is one of the more obscure references. There's not a whole lot out there about them. There are a couple of, I mean, I was, I was looking at some of these books and they certainly sound super fun. One of these books involves Roger Sheringham, the detective sitting around with five other detectives and they all try to solve a mystery and they all solve it six different ways. And you don't find out until the very end of the book who is right. That seems to be the most famous of these novels. I believe it's called The Poisoned Chocolates Case. Do you think that the chocolates were filled with dozens and dozens of pills? What they found out in the end is that the chocolates were filled with Advil. (laughs) (laughs) Very crunchy. I don't think we need to say that much more about Roger Sheringham and Anthony Berkeley, but there you go. So Tuppence quickly realizes that there is another issue going on here, that there must be some sort of a romance at stake. She can just sniff out something romantic, some sort of romantic intrigue here when Monica is having this interview. So she takes her to lunch and they have a little girl on girl chat. So I guess in a weird way, Toppins might be the one sort of romantic matchmakery female detective of Christie's creation. Out of the pair, she certainly is more interested in romance than Tommy is. Sort of, but she's also just interested in like prying information out of Monica too. And as we're going to find out later, there's another reason she's interested. Yes. She's, she's just, she's generally nosy. She's probably, I think she's more nosy than matchmakery. Correct. I completely agree. I don't, yeah. I have to be honest, Tuppence is, uh, Tommy and Tuppence both are a little self-absorbed. I don't think that they're particularly that interested in matchmaking. They are smug married. Hey, Bridge, how's your love life? Oh. <laughs> you really ought to hurry up and get sprogged up, you know, old girl. Times are running out. Tick tock. Yeah, they are. They're so into each other and they're, they're so, so in love. Into each other. And they're so happy. <laughs> and they just have adorable adventures and get to play act. You know that they're the kind of people who like they just dress up in separate outfits and arrange to meet each other at a hotel bar and pretend to be other people. Oh, anyway. They're the worst. In some ways, they really are the worst. I know. If you met them in real life, you probably would not like them. But I still think on the page that they are delightful. And I think we're also being influenced a little bit by the Francesca Annis and James Warwick adaptation, which we will talk about. But they play up that aspect a lot more than it exists on the page. Yes, they do. In those adaptations. And it get, and I have to be honest with you, after as many of those episodes as, we, as we've watched, I think we have come to appreciate the series, but mm-hmm. their, their romantic chemistry and hijinks is beginning to grate on me. It's been a real rocky road because at first I was not into them at all. And then mm-hmm. I got really into them. And now I'm and back to... I'm kind of over them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Interesting that we had the same reaction. I know. We'll explore that uh, a little more shortly, but for now... Let's get back to our mystery here. So here's what the romantic sort of issue here that Tuppence sniffs out. There are two men who want to marry Monica, one rich and one poor. Monica, of course, loves the poor one, but if they can't get any lodgers, they're out of money, so she'll have to marry the rich one. And Tuppence does make reference to herself here, surprise, surprise, and she's basically like, oh yeah, that happened to me too, and she obviously chose the poor one, and she's just super happy with her choice, and she's so in love, and blah, blah, blah. It all worked out for her. Of course it did. Of course it did. Also, I have to say, the fact that Monica has two gentlemen going after her, and like she's basically willing to marry either of them. I mean, she's not exactly in the worst position here. Things could be worse. 
things could definitely be worse for her. That said, Tommy and Tuppence have agreed to take on the case for essentially a percentage if they find anything. So they go down to this village under the guise of potential buyers of the Red House in order to investigate the poltergeist situation. And so Tommy hits up a local bank to open an account and basically chat up the bank manager who conveniently lets slip that the late owner of the Red House, i.e. Monica's aunt, she'd taken almost all of her money and bonds out of her account not long before she died. And it explains why there was so little money left when Monica collected her inheritance. So Tommy and Tuppins immediately decide that this means that the missing money must be hidden in the house. Hence why all these people are so determined to buy the house. So they go to the house. The adventure continues. And once they get there, they're introduced to Mrs. Crockett, the housekeeper. And Mrs. Crockett apparently has a sister who married above her station. So she has a nephew who is a, quote, real gentleman, unquote, who she likes to brag about a lot. Just remember that. Just a a random nephew thrown in casually within this story. Maybe that'll be important later on. Maybe we've seen the random relative who is off camera. Mm. Maybe we've seen that before, too. Interesting. So while visiting the house, the poltergeist naturally comes to say, hey. Tommy and Tuppence make a point of talking to Crockett immediately thereafter. And Tommy is convinced she's out of breath. So that shows that she is the one who is doing all of this poltergeist stuff. They also meet a gardener who tells them that the previous owner, i.e. Monica's aunt, her rich aunt, had never asked him to bury anything. Because they start asking about buried treasure, which is, uh, right. you know, not right. weird at all. <laughs> right. Um, so Tommy and Tuppence get Monica essentially to give them all the papers that her late aunt kept in the house because they want to go through all of them. And they also tell Monica that they're willing to pay £100 more than the previous um, offer, which is Dr. O'Neill's. And they say it essentially loud enough so that everybody would hear. Mm-hmm. And so they, t- you know, they take this box of papers away and Monica immediately sort of calls them at their accommodations and tells them that she immediately got a call from Dr. O'Neill that said that, oh, he actually has an offer that's 150 pounds more than he'd originally offered. Hmm. Like, yeah. Hmm, so the world as it actually is, Kemper. Well, Tommy and Tuppence do two things very quickly. One, they immediately decide that Crockett and her nephew are clearly the poltergeist and the mystery buyer of this house, and that they are searching for these hidden bank withdrawals, that they know that they're somewhere on the property and they're desperate to get the property in their hot little hands in their possession. And then two, they spend a great deal of time sifting through the box of papers Monica has given them in an attempt to find where that missing money is. Here's my question, and we're never really given an answer to this. Why does Monica's aunt hide her money on her property? I don't know. <laughs> because we wouldn't have a story otherwise. Well, I mean, it's, you know, remember the the case of the, the missing will where yes. it was a treasure hunt. It was a, a young woman who educated herself and her uncle didn't believe in that. So he right. said, OK, you can you have to prove your wits by finding my money now in my house. That made a lot of sense. There was a really good answer to the why. There's no answer to the why here. And it's part of what makes this not the strongest story within this collection. Well, not only is there not a why, but there's the question of how everybody knows that all of this money is hidden in some place. How do we know that the woman just didn't like turn it all over to a charity? 
Right. Because or, she did, or just she go left, crazy and burn it or something. I mean, well, there's, right, yeah. But, I mean, she left other bequests in the will because that's where the rest of the money went was Monica having to pay them out. Mm-hmm. So there's really no reason why it couldn't have been that she'd walked down to like the local, you know, World War One Veterans Association or something mm-hmm. and handed them a bag of Great gold. Great War at that time, yes. Yeah. Or, a, you know, a veteran of the Great War had knocked on her door trying to sell a poem poem. yeah Yeah. read her some poems and she just decided to hand him over a bag of gold and rather than knocking her over the head dead grabbing a a sixpence and a couple of five pound (laughs) notes right you know maybe he went on his merry way with a whole bunch of cash possibly so i mean so basically we don't know the we don't know any of the whys in this story and spoiler alert we're not going to find them out. Yeah, it's. I don't know. To me, the story feels like a little bit of a rush job here. And again, we do know that this is 1923. So this is an early, early Christie story Very, very early. And perhaps we can feel that a little bit. So as far as clues go, there's really only one big clue here. And then some supporting clues that go along with this. But our big clue is a weird piece of paper in that giant box of paper that reads... My first you put on glowing coal, and into it you put my hall. My second really is the first. My third mislikes the winter blast. Luke 11.9. And as Tommy points out, that's not a very good rhyme. (laughs) (laughs) First and blast. (laughs) No. Well, I suppose it's supposed to be first and last, right? I suppose. I mean, it's still, yeah, it's not a good poem. No. And it turns out to not be that clever because here's what our deduction is. This is all on tuppence. And I suppose you are dear listeners, if you like brain teasers, Luke 11.9 is seek and you shall find. So they take that to mean we solve this, we find the treasure. some real, real leaps here. This is some real Goonies level treasure hunting that's going on here. You guys, this map is old news. Everybody and their grandfather went looking for that when our parents were our age. I mean, I mean, haven't you ever heard of that guy? What's his name? Pirate guy, one-eyed Willie. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah, Tuppence takes that to mean that if they solve the cryptogram, they'll find the treasure. So the cryptogram, what's the solution? Well, my first you put on glowing coal, and into it you put my hole, a pot. Catherine is a bit of a cryptologist. She likes a good crossword. Were you able to figure this one out, Catherine? No, and I will tell you <laughs> why. It's because I didn't try. <laughs> So that would be your answer. I have no idea if I would have uh, solved it because I just read right on through. Before we solve the whole thing, and this was the only sort of thing I found charming about this story, after Tuppence read this, reads this and they're kind of at a loss as to what the solution is, she does mention everybody used to have a collection of these sort of things about 50 years ago. You saved them up for winter evenings around the fire. It reminded me a lot of all of the riddles in Emma. Emma has a whole bunch of these exact sorts of cryptograms in them. And I I believe the solution to at least one of them in Emma is courtship. Which Emma is quite good at solving, and poor Harriet is terrible at solving. 
I did appreciate that. I mean, I think that's true that this was a form of entertainment. It was like a parlor game. Yeah, it was a parlor game. It was very, very old fashioned, even in 1923, that this is hearkening back to the 19th century here. But 1923 is close enough to the 19th century that the character of the recently departed aunt is Victorian enough that she it's it's believable that she would have made up this riddle. That's charming. That's charming. It is charming, but you still get stuff. Two weeks ago, the New York Times, the Sunday New York Times crossword puzzle, the solution was that if you connected enough certain points, it made the shape of a shark because the <laughs> entire puzzle turned out to be Jaws themed. so i'm not casting aspersions on these yeah so we got the first two lines my first you put on glowing coal and into it you put my hole that's hole with a w by the way yeah so so pot that's a pot Mm -hmm. my second really is the first a that would be the letter a first letter of the alphabet my third mislikes the winter blast white toes of course (laughs) yeah of course it could be so many. It could be your nose. It, it could, could be, be anything. The tips but, of your you know, fingers, like yeah. anything. Any but extremity, you know, I suppose. Indeed. But uh, this little piggy doesn't like frostbite. Pop plus A plus toes. Potatoes. potatoes. <laughs> and there was a recipe uh, having to do with potatoes within that mess of papers that Monica's aunt left. That would be clue number two. The recipe for new potatoes reads, to keep new potatoes, put the new potatoes into tins and bury them in the garden. Even in the middle of winter, they will taste as though freshly dug. And I have to say, that is good advice because... One of the few major inconveniences of living in the Mediterranean-ish climate, depending on how much of a drought we're going through at any point in time, but one of the inconveniences of living in Southern California is that potatoes spoil so oh my gosh. quickly. It's terrible. It's, I, it's I, terrible. I got some in uh, my CSA like a week and a half ago, and they had eyes on them in maybe – three days. Oh, I have picked out green sprouts from the eyes of potatoes that I have then totally eaten more often than not. It's ridiculous. We pretty much have a day in Southern California to eat a potato after you buy it because you can't put them in the refrigerator because you're not supposed to do that. That's too cold. But then if you leave them out, they spoil. Yeah, really so, annoying. So quick. They, uh, potatoes and bananas. They go bad so quickly that it's yeah. astonishing. And onions too. Potatoes, onions, tomatoes, bananas. These are all fruits and vegetables that just really deeply should not be refrigerated. Everything else I think you can get away with, you know, like you can refrigerate your melons and your, oh, yeah, I mean, you kind of have to after they're ripe anyway, and apples and things like that. But those, they're just, you know, makes me pine for the days of living on the East Coast and Catherine, I don't know if we've mentioned this before, but Catherine hails from far northern reaches of the U.S., right, Catherine? I do. Born on the lovely shores of Lake Michigan and Chicago, and also definitely grew up in the wintry north of uh, Minnesota. 
So, And you can just put those suckers right outside. You could have a little bin for your potatoes and your onions and can put them in like your garage, just whatever. It's very easy to keep them. Well, and they can, they keep it, you know, and also you can dig. I think this happens on occasion where people will excavate a site and dig down into what was like a root cellar. Mm-hmm. And you can distinctly find very, very, very old root vegetables and potatoes that you can still tell what they are because they have been buried in the cold for so long. So, yeah, it makes perfect sense to me that you would bury your potatoes. And I have to imagine that Agatha Christie did this or saw it being done and thought, "Ooh, that's a good idea for a buried treasure story. I wish he could have given us a better reason why this treasure was buried, but hey. So the deduction here is that the treasure is, of course, buried along with potatoes. And the gardener didn't mention it because he always buries the potatoes. That's just a normal course of events. And when asked, did you bury anything for your mistress? He's thinking, well, you're asking, did you bury anything out of the ordinary? Not did you bury anything. So it's a little bit of a logic disconnect there. And I also appreciated that. What happens, Catherine? Tommy and Tuppence go to speak to the gardener at his home the next morning, which happens to be Christmas Eve, because um, it doesn't seem like the nicest thing for them to be bothering him at home on Christmas Eve. But hey, he tells them that, yeah, of course, he always buried the potatoes and he buried them against the wall by the fir tree. And then they, you know, thankfully they pay him. So at least he gets something out of it. And then they go get a shovel and they head over to the Red House. And they open up box number one, and it's filled with potatoes. (laughs) And they open up box number two, and it's filled with potatoes. But the third box is the charm. They pull out a velvet bag from this third box, run off with it to their hotel room, and naturally it is filled with gold bonds and very expensive pearls. And there, there had also been an article within all of those clippings yeah, about, about, about investing one's money by buying a nice set of pearls. Right. So uh, Monica Dean is going to be a very, very rich woman. Crockett and her nephew have been foiled. They have. And it is a Merry Christmas for Monica and for Tommy and Tuppence. And Tuppence says, do you know, Tommy? I feel all queer and choky about the throat when I think of it, about just about how happy Monica's going to be. Darling Tuppence, said Tommy. Darling Tommy, said Tuppence. How awfully sentimental we are getting. Christmas comes but once a year, said Tommy sententiously. That's what our great-grandmother said, and I expect there's a lot of truth in it still. The <laughs> end. Happy Christmas in July. Very, very Christmassy story coming here from Agatha Christie. Right, and they, they keep the Christmas element intact in the adaptation. The adaptation keeps everything intact, but then similar to what happened in The Unbreakable Alibi, because there was not quite enough to fill out a 50-ish minute episode, they add some elements, and it's fairly goofy. Well, the the psychical research takes on its own plot line. Right. Like Tuppence dresses, I mean, Tuppence loves vamping around in a costume, especially as portrayed by Francesca Annis. So she pretends to essentially be a spirit medium. Mm-hmm. She swans around in, in sort of like a turban and, and a ridiculous outfit. From the very moment I entered your house, Miss Dean, of course, Miss Dean, I felt as though I had come to West. Although West is hardly a word one would use to describe someone possessed, perhaps accursed with psychic power. I mounted your staircase as though in a trance. 
And without knowledge, I was simply drawn to the room that we will now occupy. And all around me, I sense the presence of an unhappy child. We've also seen Francesca Ennis do this before in previous episodes, I think to greater effect. There's more racy Tommy and Tuppence hijinks. I'm very much afraid the four posters always have an effect on me. Always? I couldn't possibly permit an uneventful night in a four-poster. Tuppence, start concentrating that fertile mind of yours and finding this beastly treasure. Now, you're a woman. A neglected one. Nonsense. Anyway, you're far more likely than I to know where an old lady would hide things. Same place as a young lady. Tuppence, really? Talking of ladies, by the way, how is it that in our disguised form, I remain plain mister whilst you assume a title? I thought it a perfect opportunity to see how it might have felt had I married Graham. (laughs) You'll find a lot more to put up with married to Graham Grassmere than a title. A lot less, too, if my information is correct. Tommy, you could be very cruel. There's a lot of suggestive language, especially for an early 80s adaptation on British television. I I was a little surprised, but I suppose it's charming if you're not sick of Tommy and Tuppence by this point. Yeah, then there's just a lot of hijinks because Crockett and her nephew overhear them finding the anagram and they figure it out. And then they dig up a whole field. But then Tuppence waylays the gardener and she finds out the potato tins are buried somewhere else. And they pour coal on Crockett and her nephew while they're listening to them again. And then they go out in the dark and they dig in the right place, but it's then... It's a little Cro- um, hijinks-heavy. It's very hijinks-heavy. It's like Crockett and the nephew bash the one who Monica likes, who is kind of like helping them out in the adaptation. He's involved and they bash him over the head with a flashlight. And then Albert, who is their servant, who is in at least some of these stories, and he was certainly in The Secret Adversary, he literally swings into the action on a rope. Done, Albert. Tarzan the Ape Man. Douglas Fairbanks in the Black Pirate. He knocks the gun out of the nephew's hand and he foils their plan because they were holding Tommy and Tuppence up at gunpoint saying, give me the money. And the day is saved and it's all a little silly and not that much better than what is on the page, quite honestly. As you could probably tell from my tone, I really, really, I hit a wall with this series on this one. I think we only have one more to go. So, I, you know, I don't think I hit a wall with the portrayals, but the hijinksiness of it was not really welcome. Mm-hmm. So the flirtation stuff between Tommy and Tuppence, I'm, you know, I'm here for that. I'm sure. still happy. I'm still okay with them being more of the same. Marrieds. Yeah. It's more of the same. I'm yeah. still yeah. fine with that. It was having to create an action plot. It was like a far worse version of how we've often made fun of how so many Poirots end in a car chase. <laughs> it's like these Tommy and Tuppence's descend into slapstick hijinks. Right. Yeah. And they've done it before. It was just a little, it was a little extra in this one, yeah. I think. Yeah. is The Clergyman's Daughter, our latest Tommy and Tuppence short story. We've only got one more of those folks because the last 
short story within the collection is one of those interstitial thriller episodes. We will be summarizing that with our final Tommy and Tuppence mystery when we get to it within... I you have know, to tell you though, you know, y- you said that you were a little worn out by their romantic antics, and that's fair. But I have to tell you, the next time we're going to meet them, and you know, it won't be that long from now. But the mm-hmm. next time we meet them, we're not going to have young Tommy and Tuppence anymore. That's true. We've almost reached the end of the young Tommy and Tuppence, so we should be savoring it. You're right, Catherine. Thank you for yeah. that reminder. I think, yeah, I think it's worth remembering. Not not to say that it's not going to be interesting to see them aged up, but this right. is close to the close to the end of our pretty young things version. In the next story, including the summation of the final thriller episode within this collection, something happens to Tommy and Tuppence that just catapults them into adulthood. But I wouldn't want to spoil it, so you'll just have to wait and find out what that is. Intriguing, as tempting as that is, we should also note what our next novel is. Of course, of course. We should note two things. We have another short story coming up, The Manhood of Edward Robinson, which is our next story within the Listerdale Mystery Collection. Very excited for that one. Catherine loves the Listerdale Mystery Collection. Don't I you, do. You know what? You're saying that as though you're being sarcastic, but I actually really <laughs> do like it. So don't make me sound dismissive. I actually <laughs> legitimately like those stories. I mean, let's be clear. Parker Pine for Catherine. Mr. Quinn for Catherine. But Listerdale Mystery, you're you're a stan. Oh, I don't know if I'm a stan, but <laughs> I mean, I I enjoy I enjoy when we come across one. All right. Well, The Manhood of Edward Robinson, next short story. And then right after that, it is time for it is finally here, ladies and gentlemen. And then there were none. It's happening. And just so you know, we're doing something similar to what we did with Murder on the Orient Express. There are so many film adaptations, and it is such a classic of Christie's that we felt that we needed to divide the episode into two parts. Our first episode will be devoted to the text of the novel and the play which Christy also wrote. So just the novel and play, and then there were none. And then the second episode will be all about the many, many film adaptations of that And gee, are there a lot of them. And oh boy, are there a lot of them. We will cover certainly all of the major English language adaptations. Although, and we do, we do hear all of you who have written to us repeatedly about the Russian one. We will be covering that one as well. Yes, can't wait. I'm actually really excited to watch that one because you all have hyped it up. I know, so I know. So it better it, live it, up to the hype. It, all of you who have written to us about it, it will be on you <laughs> if it does not live up <laughs> to the hype. If we don't love it, if it's not life-changing. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the meantime, please reach out to us. You can email us at allaboutthedamagemail.com. We are on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. We're on Instagram at All About Agatha. We are on Twitter at All About the Dame. Catherine is on Twitter at Brobcat. We love when people rate and review us. It helps others find the podcast. Please take a moment to do that, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Life's better with an auto policy from American Family Insurance. No matter what dreams you're driving towards. That's because our expert agents will make you feel totally protected with the right auto coverage at the right price. You'll also save up to 23% when you bundle auto with home. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.